You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Well, as Christians... We believe that the Bible is the word of God and that when we read the Bible, God speaks to us. So let's begin by hearing what God has to say to us from the book of Job. I'm going to be beginning at chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of complete integrity, who feared God and turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep and goats, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns having banquets in their homes. They'd send out an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. This is Job's regular practice. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, Where have you come from? Oh, from roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, from walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity, who fears God, and turns away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well. The Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, While the oxen were ploughing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabaeans swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, God's fire fell from heaven. It burned the sheep and the servants and devoured them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. That messenger was still speaking, And yet another came and reported, The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword. 
and I alone have escaped to tell you. And he was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job stood up. He tore his robe and shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshipped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will lead this life. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. One day, the sons of God came again to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord asked Satan, Where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. He still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him for no good reason. Skin for skin, Satan answered the Lord. A man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to his face, to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan. He's in your power. Only spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat amongst the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Just curse God and die. You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namanite, heard about this adversity that had happened to him, each of them came from his home. They met together to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they looked from a distance, they could barely recognize him and they wept aloud. And each man tore his robe and threw dust in, in the air and on his head. Then they sat on the ground with him, seven days and nights. But no one spoke a word to him, because they saw that his suffering was intense. Uh, friends, let's pray together. Almighty God, 
And loving Father, may the words that I speak now be your words. May you graft them into our hearts and work in us so as to bring forth the fruit of good works. We pray this for the honour and praise of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Friends, today what I want to do is I want to begin by introducing you to a certain man. Uh, We'll call him Alfred. Alfred is a Christian man. He's a stalwart member of a Christian congregation, uh, a well-known man. He's about 40 to 45 years old. Uh, In his working life, he's an entrepreneur. Uh, He's succeeded in his business. He's made money and he's done well. And uh, while other entrepreneurs are being found out for crooked business dealings, nothing can be found on this one. He has a reputation for honesty and integrity. He's well respected in his community. He's known to be a Christian of conviction. Everyone in his local church looks up to him. He's godly, honest, generous, faithful. He has solid family life. His kids are Christians, well involved in Christian activities. He's a man who has sacrificially financed many Christian and other and gospel causes. He has constantly and anonymously helped out the poorer members of, con- of the congregation. He's an elder in the church, a Bible study leader, an occasional preacher. Many young men and women have chosen him as a model for Christian living. And then the crunch comes. The bottom falls out of a key market area, his key market area. Interest rates rise, stock market crashes. Kids are killed in a small plane crash on the way home from central Australia. He contracts AIDS. Now, he cannot work out how it happened. He suspects it was while he was in Africa helping out in a hospital some time ago. Others are sure it was contracted some other way. In any case, the church begins to ostracise him and his wife. His wife suspects that he's been unfaithful or even worse. She finds it hard to continue being a Christian in the face of criticism in the church. Finally, she gives up her faith and tells him, do the same. Then his business partner leaves the business. When he does, Alfred finds out that the partner has embezzled the company. He is forced to sell everything, even the family home. Within 12 months, he finds himself penniless and in hospital. He still tries to read his Bible and pray, but he finds the whole experience barren and frustrating. He's convinced that God has deserted him as well. Finally, the minister turns up with a few church leaders. They talk to him about pleasantries for a few moments, and then the conversation turns to his relationship with God. And they accuse him of being homosexual. They charge him with being financially corrupt. Then they explain to him what has happened is actually the judgment of God on him. And they demand that he publicly acknowledge his wrongdoing and repent. Until he does so, no member of church will be, able to, uh, will be allowed to have contact with him. Friends, in my imagination, this imagined story of Alfred is a contemporary equivalent, really, to the situation portrayed in the book of Job. But I thought I'd give you this alternative way in so you can get a feel for what it actually is like. And the question posed, I think, by this book, Job, is this. How would you feel if it was you in this situation? 
How would you react? What would you do if this happened to you? Well, today and for the next three weeks, we are going to take a look at this magnificent and interesting book. I will introduce you to the book today and I'll give you an overview of it, a way to read it. In the subsequent weeks, I'm going to look at three other key passages within the book. This week, I need to tell you, is the heaviest of the lot. Okay, so hang in there. This one's the hardest. I'm going to go right through the whole book, telling you its main themes and drawing out some of its application and implication for us today. Because it's going to be pretty heavy going, I suggest you take notes. Uh, not taking, uh, note-taking cements things in the mind and it engages different learning styles. Uh, it's generally helpful and it's one reason why we give you outlines each week is so that you can write notes uh, or at least uh, you can see them in front of you. Let's get, down, let's get down to work together. Now, please have your, your Bibles open at the book of Job. It's easy to find in the Bible. You basically open your Bible, well... Even the digital, the digital version's a little harder. If you had a physical Bible, you just open it in the middle and there's Job. If you miss it, you only miss it by going to Psalms, right? Um, so open your Bible and then flip to the book of Job and I need to tell you that the book of Job is from a certain breed of scholars at some particular part in Israel's history. They are wise men. They're known as that wise men. If you read your Old Testament, you'll also find wise women, you'd be glad to hear. Um, and we'll call them the wise ones. Okay, This group of people who write about what's called wisdom in the Old Testament. Now, these wise ones had a few premises, undergirding principles as it were. The first one is, God is the creator of all the world. This fact must undergird all of life. Life must operate within the boundaries of God the Creator. And it's this concept of God as Creator and the one who undergirds all of life that can be summed up in one little saying. The little saying is this, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The second premise is this, and the Lord is the Creator and a wise approach to life, therefore, is to live in the light of Him. The second premise is this, that the fear of the Lord must infiltrate into every part of your existence. It must flow down into every part of your existence. It must affect everything for you. Practical everyday skills, the way you think about and act in your relationships, the way you rear your children, live with your peers, your spouse, your parents and so on. It must filter down into the way you think about the intellectual dilemmas of life that we encounter in life. Everything must be subsumed under the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord must infiltrate every element of your life and change it. That's the second premise of the wise ones of Israel. Third premise flows from the previous two. Third premise of the wise ones is that sensible and successful life is the godly life. God is the creator of the world. He created the world to function in a particular way. If we live that way, then we'll be successful in life. If we live the way that God created the world to be lived in, we will be successful in life. If we live another way, we'll fail in life. 
Again, that could be consumed under a little saying. And it's this, what a person sows, that shall they reap. What a person sows, that shall they reap. Um, so if a person acts rightly before God, God will reward them. If a person acts wrongly before God, God will punish them. Now, well, that sounds very neat, doesn't it? Very smooth, very much makes sense. And many of us, I think, underneath it all, personally subscribe to this sort of theory, something like this. So it's not unusual for us. However, there's some, there's, there's some very quite significant problems with this approach, isn't there? What are they? Can you identify any problems with this approach? Well, the obvious ones are these. The first problem is there are some obvious exceptions to this rule of life, aren't there? You don't have to look very far in the world to find them. After all, a good God-fearing life does not always end in success, blessing and happiness. Each of us knows examples of this. We even have a saying that has an echo of this such as this. Only the good die young. That's exactly what that's saying, isn't it? It doesn't always work this way in life. Second problem is, there's a danger that if you have this approach to life that, and this simple equation about life, then you could exploit or abuse it. There's a danger or risk that people will see life in God's world as a commercial, a commercial enterprise. Oh, I'll be good and God-fearing simply for the commercial reason that it pays. That is, I will do well if I keep to this. Now, that is where I think the book of Job comes in. You see, Job was living proof of a life of wisdom, a life-fearing God, paying dividends. He was just living proof. Let's look at it in the Bible together. Have your Bibles open. First, we hear from the narrator of the book of Job that Job is righteous. Look at verse 1 in the book. There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of complete integrity. He feared God and turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. That's, that's a good round number in the world, in the world Job lives in. Second, we hear of Job's righteousness endorsed by God in verse 8. Have a look at verse 8, chapter 1. The Lord says to Satan this, Have you considered my servant Job no one on earth is like him a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil a good there is the ultimate good man isn't it third we hear that such righteousness um, appears to bear fruit in a life of blessing that's what the book of Job tells us time and time again look at verses one to three again and the writer says a man in the country of Uz named Job he was a man of complete integrity. He feared God, turned away from evil. He had seven sons, three daughters. They're good round numbers, let me tell you, in the Hebrew way of thinking. His estate included 7,000 sheep and goats, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man, man among all the people of the East. Can you hear it? A life of fearing God paid he was doing very well much blessing for him 
And the question is, why? Why was Job wise? You see, that's the question that's posed by this whole book. Why was Job wise? Why did he fear God? Was it merely because it paid to live that way? And that's where Satan comes in. He's introduced in verse 6. Oh, the term Satan means an adversary or an opponent. And that's what he is doing here. That's what he's doing in this part of the book. He's setting out an alternative case. Let's have a look at it together. Verses 9 to 11, he says, Ah, oh, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed, he's talking to God here, haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, everything he owns? You've blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns and he will surely curse you to your face. It's a very strong challenge, isn't it? Can you hear what Satan is accusing uh, Job of and God of? He's saying, look, Job's righteous because he knows it's the way of blessing. It pays. Job's righteous for commercial reasons. He's not interested in it for God's sake. No, no, no. He's interested in God for what he can get out of God. And in my view, that is what I think the rest of the book is fundamentally about. That's why I've taken some time to set it up for us. I think the book raises significant other issues, such as the rule of God and the problem of suffering, but I don't think that's what its heart is. I think the heart is who is right. Is God right? That is, is Job only interested in God for God's sake? Or is Satan right? That is, Job's interested in God for what he can get out of the, 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 the allegiance he has. So that's the setting for the book. Very important to notice that. I think many people get it wrong here. But that's what I think the book is about. And having set the, contest, the con context, the contest begins. You see, God agrees to let Satan test Job. In effect, what is being said is something like this. Oh, look. If Job's in it for commercial reasons, if he's in it for what he can get out of it, if he's righteous because it results in being blessed by the God of all the earth, then if I withdraw, if God withdraws blessing from God, Job has every right to stop being righteous. Can you see that? So, stage one begins in the contest. Who is right, God or the Satan? And in verse 12 of chapter 1, look at what happens. Job's life begins to fall apart. He loses his property in a series of business calamities, verses 14 to 17. He loses his sons and daughters in natural disaster, verses 18 and 19. Then Satan comes back to God in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And he's cynical and he claims, this is not a, being, this is not a real test of Job's integrity. Job himself hasn't been touched yet. Look at chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. Skin for skin, says Satan. A man will give up, his give up everything he owns in exchange for his life. But stretch out your hand, strike his flesh and his bones, and he'll surely curse you to your face. This is potent, isn't it? And God accedes to the challenge. 
He allows Satan to continue to act in this man's life. Job himself is touched. He loses his own health in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. His wife then despairs, chapter 2, verse 9. And his friends, who assume that the business approach to a relationship with God is the right one, conclude that Job must have broken his side of the deal. They guess that he he must have sinned or acted wrongly. Therefore, God's withdrawn goodness from him. Let me show you one of them. I want you to look at Eliphaz. You find him there in chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. Look at what he has to say. This is an assertion of orthodox dogma, orthodox teaching. He says, consider, who has perished when he was innocent? Where have the honest been destroyed? In my experience, those who plough injustice and those who sow trouble reap the same. What you sow, there you, that you reap. The implication is clear. Therefore, you can read backwards, can't you? Job is reaping evil. He must have ploughed evil. And, but as the argument rages between Job and his friends, Job hangs on. This is the remarkable thing about the book. He clings to God despite God's apparent withdrawal from him. Now, what I want you to do, what we're going to do now is take a flying run through the rest of the book. So hang on in there, have your Bibles open, and let's see what happens. In Job 3, chapters 3 to 26, there are three rounds of speeches. The argument of the friends goes something like this in those speeches by them. Look, we all know God protects and blesses the righteous. Job isn't being protected and blessed any more, therefore he must not be righteous. Now, first, Job doesn't claim to be blameless at all. He merely clings to claims that the sufferings he's experiencing are out of proportion to any sins he might have committed. But later, his tone changes. He then rejects the whole argument put forward by the friends. He says, it doesn't fit. I don't fit. He says that they stop arguing and merely, he says, just stop arguing with me, will you? And just sympathize with what I'm going through. Finally, Job calls out for a personal audience with God. Can you see? You've got no greater person to go to. So you say, I want God to come down here, as it were. I, I've got something to say. He claims that God has become his enemy. He's confident that if only he could see God and confront God, then he'd be cleared. Or at least find out what's going on, which might be helpful. In all of this, he never moves away, though, from his confidence in God and in God's goodness. He never gives up absolute trust in God. His conclusion is that only a direct and personal encounter with God can sort out the issue. But what's the big problem? God's in heaven. He's down here. God's inaccessible. What can be done? And then we come to the beginning of the end of the book, Job 27 through to 28. And what happens in these two chapters is that Job hands over his case to God. He then meditates on the nature of wisdom. And we'll look at this hopefully later in in a later sermon. But I want you to look now at chapters 29 to 37. In those chapters, 
we met another person we have not met so far. And maybe if you've read the book of Job, you remember him. His name is Elihu. He sort of just appears out of nowhere, doesn't he? And it appears as though he's a young man who has been present observing the previous speeches, but hasn't said a word yet. His speeches represent a final human comment, I think, before God speaks. He does say a few more things that have not been said so far, but basically he doesn't have any answers either. Uh, Job still needs to sort it out directly with God. Then in chapters 28 to 41, God does what Job requested. It's remarkable. He comes to him in personal encounter. God, the creator of all the world, reveals himself in majesty. He asserts himself in this display of great creative power. God's encounter comes by way of two speeches. The implication of the first speech is this. God doesn't always want humans to know all the factors that are at work in his dealings with them. That is, we humans often see the what, but we don't always know the why. And if you haven't experienced that in life yet, you will. In chapter 40, Job responds. And he's subdued. He confesses his ignorance. But he still refuses to confess his sin. This is very striking. The implications of the speech are this. Job cannot control the natural world. Since he can't do this, this is what God is saying. Who does he think he is to make proclamations on the spiritual or moral world? He's not the creator. He must leave that realm in the hands of God. The complexities of life are in the hands of God. And I need you to notice what has gone on here. Please, please take this on board. Job has come, I think, scaringly close to provoking God. It's scary. He sails close to the wind here. But in my view, he stops before you get too far. Then we come to chapters 42, to chapter 42, 1 to 6. Job responds to God's speech. He's convinced. It's as though he's saying, I have been out of my depth. Verse 6 indicates that God is in the right and Job's in the wrong. Job does need to repent. That's obvious. It's not that he did wrong and therefore suffered. No, it's that in his sufferings, he spoke out against God and assumed prerogatives that didn't belong to him. The point is clear. God is in the right. God is right. God is just. His justice is just. He is the creator and only ruler of the world. The final section comes. This has been a flying whirlwind tour, hasn't it? But let's keep going. Final section comes in chapter 42. Verses 7 to 17. I think it's here that it's concluded. Job is declared to be in the right. That's astounding, isn't it? In other words, God is in the right. In other words, Satan is wrong. Job has experienced suffering in its extreme and persevered with God. He has demonstrated that he serves God from a noble heart, a pure heart. 
He doesn't, fear, he doesn't fear God and put his trust in God for commercial reasons. That is, because it pays. No, he doesn't love God for what he can get out of it. No, he loves God for the sake of God himself. He fears and trusts God solely for who he is. So there's my overview of the book for you. Thank you for sticking with me in what is a, one of the more complicated books of the Bible. What I'd like to do now is make some theological observations and reach a conclusion and have a take-home for us. Okay? The observations are these. First, the book makes clear that the presence of evil in our world cannot always be explained. Please hear that. The presence of evil in our world cannot always be explained. Second, we live in a world as finite beings, don't we? We need to avoid coming up with simplistic solutions and making simplistic pronouncements about what God is about in his dealings with individuals. Friends, I hear Christians do it all the time. Be careful. Third, we need to recognise that God is not bound by our answers to life's enigmas. God alone knows all. God alone knows all. Four, God alone is sovereign. He's closely in touch with his world. He's in control of his world. He's not bound by his world. He stands above that world. Five, God can be trusted. Even when everything else seems to point against his trustworthiness, he alone is in control. He alone is trustworthy. Six, Job's request and God's response is finally sorted out. Where? In Jesus. Let me explain. You see, Job in this book asks for movement and action from God, doesn't he? He says, I want something particular. I want you to come down here. I want you to come and see my life. See how crap it is. And I want you to be here. He asked for, Job to come, for God to come down, to encounter him directly, to experience his lot, to enter his world, to feel what it is like. And that's exactly what God does in Jesus, isn't it? In Jesus, God, the man, God in human shape, suffers as a man. God, the only perfect human in human history, suffers for the unrighteous. The righteous suffers for the unrighteous. In Jesus, can you see what happens? Can you see the magnificence of what happens in Jesus? God joins us in our human situation. He lives in this world we live in. Now, by way of conclusion, I want us to do some hard thinking about ourselves and our relationship with God. You see, I wonder how many of how, how, how we would fare if we were placed in Job's situation. Now, I've been a pastor for 40 years and I could tell you how many, 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 many Christians respond. I wonder how we would fare if we were placed in Job's situation. If Satan were to front up with God and accuse us before God, 
If we were to say to God, look, look, I think Andrew Reid is merely interested in relating to you because of what he gets out of it. Look at him. He loves you because he's scared of hell. He fears you because he wants to go to heaven. He likes you for the prestige that it brings. He worships you for the gifts you bestow on him. He sticks with you because of that warm feeling of security it gives him. And so on and so forth. He's not interested in you for your sake. No, no. No, he loves you out of self-interest. He fears you because he knows it works in the world. He's exploiting you, using you. So if Satan were to accuse me of that, how would I stand? If he were to accuse you of that before God, how would you stand? Can you hear my question? I want you to ask yourself seriously here today. How do you stand up? How do you measure up? Why are you here today? If you're Christian, why do you bother being Christian? Let me give you an illustration. I have a friend. This is a real life person. He's a wealthy friend. He's a generous friend. Because he's wealthy, because he's generous, because he loves giving to others, he lives in perpetual danger. What is that danger? The perpetual danger he lives in is that his friends will be his friends because of his wealth. Not because of him, but because of his wealth. His friends also live in perpetual danger. They're in perpetual, da- perpetual danger of people loving, sorry, yeah, loving him for what they can get out of him. My friend who is really a friend, sorry, the friend who's really a friend is the friend who is friends with that man for himself. That makes sense? He's a friend for friendship's sake. The friend who's really a friend is one who will continue to love whether gifts are given or not. The friend who's really a friend is the one who goes out of his way to make contact with the other person. The friend who's really a friend is one who serves the other without waiting to be served. The friend who's really a friend tries to outdo the other person in generosity and friendship. Don't you love those friends? Perhaps you have some. Uh, Friends, being a Christian is good. It brings friendship. It brings spiritual highs. It makes you feel cosy and secure. It promises the cosy warmth of heaven and not the heat of hell. It promises security and happiness. Which is what we all want, isn't it? If not in this life, certainly in the life to come. And you can tell that these people who act in the commercial way are not honest. Why? Because they bail out when things get tough. When things go wrong, what do they do? I've met these people pastorally in my ministry. They blame God. Perhaps you've met such people. 
perhaps you've talked with them. When other relationships intrude, they choose the other relationships as being more important than their relationship with God. When the same blessings can be gained more easily, they choose the easier way to go. So let me ask you again, friends. It's a very important question. I think it's the question behind this book. What sort of friend of God are you? What sort of friend of God are you? Are you in it for what you can get out of it? Do you love God out of self-interest, essentially? Or are you in it because you just love God? Are you into being a Christian for the sh- just the sheer heck of being related to the God of all the earth? You see, it's that sort of friend who will be welcomed by Jesus on the last day. The one who said, Where else have we to go? For you alone have the words of eternal life and I cannot think of a better place to be for eternity than in your presence. Where else can I go except to you? You see, it's that sort of friend who will be welcomed by Jesus on the last day. It's that sort of friend he will welcome into his presence and shower with his generosity, even though they'd just be happy to live in his presence. (laughs) That's what they've waited for all their life. With that said, let's pray, and that question hanging, let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful book of Job. Thank you for all its aspects, for the way it confronts us. Thank you even for the way that it threatens us. Thank you so much for the story of this man Job and his struggle with you. Please, as we look at this book in the coming weeks, help us. Be at work in us. Please open us up to you and your Son, our Lord Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.